Hello, hello, hello. It's another Friday evening. Two weeks have passed since we last spoke, my dear listeners. Um, it's another show. Welcome to the 21st century, where educational leaders discuss at length what the future of education looks like. It's a radio show that I must say, and podcast, that aims to inform, to challenge, and to inspire you. You know, I still haven't got the hang of the timings of the intro music there. I really must get it right. Almost got it right this week. Almost got it right. Anyway, let's get started with the show. Now, a formal welcome to you all in leading in the 21st century. This is the podcast slash radio show brought to you by Teachers Talk Radio um, that will bring you the latest and greatest in the world of education, technology and innovation. Now, I am will be your guide this evening through this exciting journey. And today, this evening, I have got planned for you a phenomenal lineup that will challenge, inspire and entertain you. Now, let us dive into what's in store for this evening's episode. In our first segment, we will get there shortly. We will be experimenting again with the Did You Know, where we'll uncover some of the mind-blowing, humorous and topical facts about the incredible world of STEAM. For those of you not in the know, STEAM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, Art and Mathematics. If that's thrown you off slightly, because there is an A that's added into the STEM, We'll explain more on that as the show goes on. I hope to uncover it for you as we do the Did You Know segment. Now, I do want you to be prepared to be amazed as we reveal lesser known tidbits that'll make you laugh, that'll make you think and appreciate the wonders of steam like you have never appreciated before. After that, we have an exclusive interview with the remarkable Heather Pearson, who is a trailblazing STEAM educator whose unique journey has taken her from the icy landscapes of Alaska all the way to the historic shores of England. Join us as we delve into her transformative high school experience, diverse career path and her unwavering passion for shaping the future of school through project-based learning at a technical college. And finally, our third and final segment of the evening, we will be embarking on an exploration of why we as educational leaders must, and I really do mean must, take on the role of digital guardians of the galaxy. As the custodians of the digital world, it is our moral responsibility to shepherd our students through the ever-evolving digital landscape. Get ready for a thought-provoking discussion that will challenge the way you think about education in the 21st century. So, as ever, grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's dive into the fascinating world of leading in the 21st century. Stay tuned as the adventure begins. Okay, so this is our Did You Know segment. 
Welcome to the latest edition of our radio show. In today's segment, titled Did You Know, we'll be exploring some fascinating, lesser-known facts about the world of STEAM. Science, technology, engineering, art and mathematics. So buckle up as we dive into five intriguing tidbits that are sure to make you laugh, think and marvel at the wonders of STEAM. Now, let us introduce our first fact. This one I would say is fairly topical. I especially like it because it involves artificial intelligence. Did you know, for example, the world's first robot artist, Aida, as in Ida, held its debut exhibition in 2019? Hold on, let me do my maths here. That must be, what, within this past decade? Uh, well, in the last decade, four or five years ago. This humanoid robot has the ability to draw, to paint, and even dare I say it, create sculpture. More, IDAR's artistic talents have been recognised globally with its artwork set for tens of thousands of dollars. You know, I guess we can finally put the A in steam quite literally now. If robots are creating pieces of art and we're willing to pay tens of thousands of pounds or dollars for said pieces of art, surely that A belongs in the steam. Um, acronym there. Now, fact two, I hope this one's going to bring a little bit of humour to your evening. Um, I really want you to think, you know, have you ever wondered who came up with the term bug? You know, this is a term that we use quite often, like uh, when you talk about technology to describe, you know, a possible uh, software glitch. Um, you know, you could say, oh, my computer's bugged or, you know, I want to debug my computer system. You know, there's a computer virus, a computer bug, et cetera, et cetera. Now, it turns out that in 1947, so we're going way back in the past century now. Um, sorry for anyone listening that may have been born in, in around about this time or, or, or so forth. Um, but way back in 1947, a computer pioneer by the name of Grace Hopper found, and I kid you not, found an actual moth trapped inside the Mark II computer at Harvard University. I I didn't know this, you know, you know, I, I grew up through the 90s into the early noughties, etc. And I just assumed it was a technical term that you know, just belongs to the technical world. You know, this computer is bugged. This computer has a bug. Anyway, this moth was causing the machines at Harvard University to malfunction. And thus, the term debugging was born, where literally those students and the staff at Harvard University would actively, physically um, debug the machines um, that they were operating. <laughs> it's good to know, really, that even in the tech world, it has its fair share of buggy beginnings. Oh, my God, that was really cringy, wasn't it? I'm so sorry to you, my dear listeners. <laughs> anyway, let's move on to fact number three. This is a personal favourite of mine. You, For anyone listening out there that has listened to me beforehand, you know that I'm a sucker for anything futuristic, any futurism, any sci-fi I absolutely love. So this one is for the dreamers out there. And when I say the dreamers, I'm thinking like big time, you know, your sky's up, your sky's up in the clouds, your head's up in the clouds, blue thinking, etc., etc. Now, did you know that scientists 
are actively researching ways to harness energy directly from space. Yeah, <laughs> you, you've, you've heard that right. Scientists are actively researching how they can harness energy from space. The concept is known as space-based solar power, and it involves capturing solar energy in space, converting it into microwaves and beaming it back to Earth. You know, I, ca I can't really explain like the implications of this to you, but if you could capture the energy from the sun almost continually, because it won't be a case like we have solar panels on our roofs in the northern hemisphere today where we only have sunlight for a certain amount of time but theoretically you could capture the sun's rays the sun's energy the solar power continually if this could be cracked where the the, the, the the microwaves are sent down to the earth and converted to some form of energy that would resolve this energy crisis most certainly that we're in now but it would potentially create a more fair and equal planet to to, to live on plus it will take away and strip away, obviously, the, the, the reliance that we have on, you know, carbon, carbon emitting um, fossil fuels um, and those huge gas reserves. You know, it, it's a it's a it's a possible technology. I'm not saying that it, it is going to happen. You know, when I first read about this, I just had this huge like image in my head of these huge solar panels, you know, floating around in the earth's orbit with a huge kind of like hose pipe connected i don't know why i thought a hose pipe but i thought this huge cable going from the the orbit of the earth coming down to some huge um uh, power converting factory or something along those lines i mean could that work i suppose it'd be quite dangerous wouldn't it you know um if it were to, to, to collapse and fall down Oh, imagine the carnage. Anyway, this is why I do not work in the technical fields. Just in case you're listening, I am not a science, mathematics, um, uh, technical teacher. I am a teacher of English, which is a, is a technical subject in its own right. Um, however, I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm completely rifted at the moment, <laughs> so my apologies. Um, basically, I think the crux of it is I should not be responsible for creating the technology that could possibly harness the power of the solar system. Um, if I were to do that, it could be chaos and carnage for us all. Um, let's move on to fact four now. So this is where we have a connection being made. And this is a connection that's being made between mathematics as well as art. Now, mathematics and art, they seem like polar opposites you could say mathematics you know I, I i don't know about you guys um but i speak to obviously students on a daily basis and one of the the difficulties i have i will get to the fact in a moment i'm just really want to get this kind of point across to you when i talk to students about mathematics and they dismiss it as a subject that is too hard or, or boring or irrelevant to their lives I have to stop them in their tracks because quite often they'll say maths is the polar opposite of this or maths is the polar opposite of that. For me, even though it isn't my subject, I consider mathematics to be integral to everything that we do. It's interconnected. It, it is, you know, it's, for, for me, it's the language of the universe. You know, it's a universal language that all understand or all should understand, perhaps. But anyway, we're talking about this connection between mathematics and art in particular did you know the famous painter 
um, the Spanish painter Salvador Dali incorporated mathematical concepts into his works. If you're not familiar with Salvador Dali, think of the melting clocks, you know, the fact that he's, you know, uh, the symbolism of the clocks there, you know, the time that is melting away, literally, I mean, time in itself is a mathematical concept. So that's quite explicit into our face. Um, but Dali specifically used the golden ratio, which is a mathematical principle found in nature and often used it in art and design. It's incredible to see how the M and the A in steam can come together so harmoniously. Um, if you're not familiar with the golden ratio, um, you know, I, I utilize this quite often. Um, I absolutely love aquascaping. Um, uh, aquascaping is a, it's a form of, uh, I suppose it's not landscaping as such because it's aqua, it's underwater. But if you, any of you keep fish out there, it's where you design um, and maintain like beautiful um, aquascapes in fish tanks. Um, currently, I have a marine reef tank and i've spent quite a lot of time just slowly building the golden ratio and making it as pleasing on the eye as possible the reef that i've set up um you know if i'm getting this right perhaps there are some mathematical teachers out there that will quote me on this and and and, and pull pull me up on it but i believe it's where you have like almost a, a, a triangle where you want the highest point to be perhaps in the top right-hand corner, the lowest point to be in the lowest left-hand corner. And then there's a line that kind of features down. It doesn't have to be an absolute straight line, but it, it's more pleasing on the eye. And then that opens up potential horizons, you know, and you could then divide between the two. Um, let's move on now. Obviously, we've got our last fact for did you know. Now, did you know? And this one, I believe, is quite topical because it involves cats. You know, I maybe I reckon I should get more cats mentioned into this show. I think that's going to be a mission for me. Can I introduce cats to leading in the 21st century? But I find, you know, I absolutely love cats. I'm a big, big um, fan of animals generally. But cats hold a special place in my heart. Now, lastly, ever thought that have you ever thought that your cat could be a scientist? Yes, yes. Think about your own cat. If you're a cat lover, you've got your own cats. Just look at them now. What are they doing? Are they conducting some sort of out of this world experiment? Are they sleeping and dreaming of mathematical equations? Are they the key to cracking the order of the universe? Now, a recent study found that cats seem to instinctively understand the basic principles of physics. Well... <laughs> That's that's good news because I do not perhaps understand the basic principles of physics myself. It's good to know that there is someone in my family that can. I, I say that actually my wife is a, a scientist herself and she will scold me for referencing the fact that perhaps she doesn't know the basic principles of physics. Um, but I, I, you know, it's just interesting to know that cats could be possible scientists themselves. Now, research has discovered that cats can predict where a hidden object might land based on the sound it makes while moving inside of a container. It's quite true, isn't it? So the next time your cat knocks something off the table, just remember they are probably just conducting their own little physics experiment. Well, to sum up there for you, we've had five interesting facts. We've had facts about um, robotic artists. 
we've had the humorous um, bugging or debugging, as it were, of the 1947 computer at Harvard University. We've had the concept of harvesting solar energy from the uh, from our Earth's orbit. We've had the connection between maths and art, perhaps again bringing unity between the art and engineering topics. And we've had obviously cats can be sentences now. So there you have it. Five lesser known facts about the wonderful world of steam. If any of you knew any of these, please just pop them into the chat or send me a message directly. When I research these, I would say I knew of one of them and that was the topical one the first one that i put in there because i thought it was interesting when i read about it years ago and that was the ai artist um you know it sold for you know it, it caught a lot of attention in the media but all of those other facts new to me and hopefully they are new to you so um we are going to be moving on um there you have it the five uh, facts that I've, I've, I've i've delivered to you there i hope that you've enjoyed this segment and you've learned something new so stay tuned um, we're going to break now for the news, and after the news, we will be introducing our exclusive guest, Heather Pearson. So, please. There we go. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat's Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides, and magazines specifically aimed forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Schools Week reports the government is set to offer overseas teachers who come to England to teach languages or physics a £10,000 relocation premium under a new trial. The premium would be open to both trainee and established teachers working outside of the UK and would be paid at the end of their first term. Under the plan there would be no need for the money to be paid back. The Department for Education said the trial could support up to 400 people to relocate with the full cost adding up to £4,000. According to recent data, secondary school teacher recruitment targets have been missed for all but one of the past 10 years, and last year they fell short by 40%. The pilot for this new programme will run in the next academic year. In strike action news, industrial action has been suspended by NEU members in Wales. The action is halted whilst a new pay offer is considered. In a statement reported on a range of media platforms, NEU leaders in Wales said that following discussions with the Welsh Government, a new revised and fully funded pay offer will be put to members. The planned strike for the 15th and 16th of March will now not take place, although these dates remain for action in England and will continue to go ahead as planned. The revised offer for those teaching in Wales is said to be worth a total of 11.8%. The offer will be voted on by members of the NEU in Wales via electronic ballot. NEU leaders Dr Mary Bowstead and Kevin Courtney thanked the Welsh Government for the constructive approach to finding a resolution and contrasted it with the behaviour of Gillian Keegan, England's Secretary of State for Education, who they said was preventing talks in England by refusing talking to ACAS. 
Teachers in Scotland who are members of the EIS union have also voted to accept their latest pay offer. This will see a 7% rise backdated to April 2022, a further 5% next month and another 2% in January. NESUWT members in Scotland have yet to vote on the offer. Student loans are back in the spotlight after changes to the system. Channel 4 reports that student loan repayments will rise for those in the next cohort of students in England, as the repayment threshold is to be dropped. The government has said this makes the loan system fairer for taxpayers and students, whilst education experts say it will make low to middle income graduates worse off. Current students will only make 9% repayments when they earn over £27,295 a year, or £2,274 a month, or £524 a week in the UK. However, if you're starting an undergrad course or qualify for an advanced learner loan on or after August the 1st, 2023, those students will pay 9% of their income over the lower threshold of £25,000 a year, 2,083 a month or 480 per week. Students on the new plan won't be expected to make payments until April 2026. The length of repayment is also changing. Current students pay until the debt is cleared or for 30 years, but new students will pay until the debt is cleared or for 40 years. Full details of the changes plus comments on the impact many believe it will have can be found on Channel 4's website and all data has been subject to the outlet's fact-check system. Finally, a writer who wrote a book on the topic of online misogyny has given an interview to The Guardian. Laura Bates wrote Men Who Hate Women, The Extremism No One Is Talking About, and it was published in 2020. In the interview, she raises concerns about the widening gap between generations who have never known a world without the internet and those older generations struggling to understand and keep up. She talks in particular of the impact this is having on what she describes as the millions of girls who are realising the impossibility of escaping from harassment, revenge porn, deep fakes and the difficulties in navigating a world online. Bates sees the problem in its broadest form, not just an issue with influencers like Andrew Tate. In fact, she says she wasn't even aware of him until last year. This, she says, is worrying in itself as there is a danger that the well-intentioned coverage will only boost his profile and that if and when his influence wanes, many will think it is a case of problem solved, when actually the problems and attitudes that give rise to people like Tate will continue. Full details of the article can be found on the Guardian website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is... Okay, okay. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It is with great excitement and honour that we introduce today's guest, a beacon of inspiration and an extraordinary force in the world of STEAM education, Heather Pearson. Now, before I before we bring Heather onto the line, I just want to give you a little bit of context behind who Heather is. Now, Heather was born and raised in Alaska. Her unique journey started at one of her uh, one of the first STEM high schools in the 1990s, where she discovered her passion for mathematics during her geometry lessons with the unforgettable Mr. Roses. Uh, this transformative experience ignited her vision for the future of education 
and set her on a path to becoming the inspiring teacher that she is today. Heather holds a bachelor's degree uh, in civil and environmental engineering and has an incredibly diverse background that spans across city planning, politics, as well as finance. Um, her adventurous spirit and commitment to family have taken her across several US states to Belgium and finally to England, where she's become a permanent resident and fulfilled her dream of becoming a teacher. Currently, Heather teaches at a UTC in Durham, uh, where she shares her passion for STEAM with students from various age groups and educational backgrounds. Her dedication to project-based learning, meaningful industri industrial partnerships and career readiness is truly inspiring. As one of the first educators to deliver the, the uh, brand new T-level in engineering, Heather has also been instrumental in shaping the future of STEAM education. So please join me in welcoming the remarkable Heather Pearson as we delve into her incredible journey, her transformative high school experience and her unwavering commitment to shape the future school through project-based learning at a technical college. So Heather, hello. I pass over to you. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Cool, cool. Um, I hope that introduction, I mean, I, I did try to get it all in there. But like when I read through your bio, there was just so much. I, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> well, you're flattering me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it needs to be said. Um, so you, you haven't always been in, in, in education. Like clearly no. you have, mm -hmm. you've, you've traveled. So for my first question really to you before we get into the nitty gritty of, of STEM in the future school, why did you want to become a teacher? Why, what, what compelled you to come to the profession? Well, I, like you kind of uh, mentioned there, I really got that first notion of becoming a math teacher when I was back in this geometry class and I was about 14 years old. And when my peers wouldn't understand something, I would turn to them and I would explain it. And, you know, they would have that like, got it moment. And I think it was a bit intoxicating. One, feeling like, you know, 14 years old, you're pretty cocky at that age, like that I was better at something than the teacher that I could explain something, you know. Um, now that I teach 14 year olds, I can completely see how, how that would be the case. But I also, you know, it felt powerful in a way because I, I I could help somebody understand something difficult. And so that was the first time that I really remember having a strong kind of idea in my head that, you know, I'm good at this and I want to be a maths teacher. Mm. And I, I believed that it was meaningful work, I think, you know, like that it was something meaningful that I could do. And I'm sure that came from, you know, having good teachers, like everybody who well, I shouldn't say everybody, but I'm, I'm sure most teachers can think back to really, you know, meaningful, impactful teachers that they had. Oh. And yeah, without uh, without a doubt, like by, myself, like I can read them off now. Mr. Hollinsby, yeah. Mr. Weller, <laughs> Mr. Hewitt, you know, Miss Morrill. She was my science teacher. Yeah. yeah, she really turned it around for me. Seriously, like before her, I didn't really think science was a thing. But anyway, back back. Yeah, back so to I yourself. could yeah. I could name I could name them too. You know, they that they <laughs> and and I think that they still guide me. That I when I'm in um, you know, difficult situations i'm not sure what i should do i still think in my mind you know what would what would tanya sperkland have done what did she do in this situation and, and so i think that they they stay with us you know so but, so I'm, I'm imagining now the students that you're teaching the students i'm teaching there's going to be a part of us always present in their lives <laughs> Probably, <laughs> probably. I, I guess that's part of our, our gift and our, our burden that we carry as teachers. 
cool, cool, cool. So, um, but like you mentioned, I, I I didn't become a math teacher right away. I, um, yeah. And, and I, you know, somehow I knew that it was something I could do later and that it didn't have to be, you know, one thing that I decided. And I don't know, maybe my parents kind of put that idea in my head that if I got a, a solid education that I could do a lot of different things with it, that it would kind of open the door. And so I, I've, uh, first studied agricultural engineering in California, and then uh, civil and environmental engineering, which I ended up getting my degree in. But then also I got married quite young and had a child and then another. And so, I was, you know, it was all kind of mixed in at this same time. But I, I did use my education in, like you'd said, a lot of different things around. But I always had an uh, in the back of my mind, I had this idea that, well, someday I'm going to be a maths teacher. And so with that kind of intention, I think I, I stayed really involved in education through my children's, um, you know, schooling. And I did uh, engineering workshops where I'd go in and uh, do engineering projects with the kids. I judged science and engineering fairs. I taught, I coached a couple math Olympiad teams, etc. So I, I, I did these things. You so know. even though you were not in education from the beginning right. of your career you've always yeah. had that tie to education you've, yeah. you've continually been involved as you say judging mm-hmm. science fairs um you know going to parent talks I would imagine you've you've, mm-hmm. you've had your foot in the educational sphere but obviously you're now in Durham um did yeah. you ever envision yourself teaching in England or was this by, well, by when chance we moved, by, by chance I think when we moved here it, the time felt right. I just, uh, like I said, I always had this idea, like I would do this and, and we moved here. It, it felt right. I knew we were going to stay here. And so it, it felt like, you know, I could put down this this permanent route. So I kind of investigated my options for training and I found a really great school-based program that was linked between a university and a, a local sixth form and, and, and kind of started my journey there with some phenomenal female mentors and tutors who... Who, uh, when I stopped believing in my original belief, you know that I would could be good at this, they they believed for me. So, cool, cool. <laughs> we all need uh, those. I, I do want to uh, jump back to your, um, your your days in Alaska. Yeah. Can I just ask, was it a STEM high school that you attended? So in the nineteen nineties, you that that was your school. It was it was already STEM focused. Is that did I yeah. Agree that correct? Yeah. So in hindsight, it really was revolutionary, I think, because this was the early 90s and nobody even used the word STEM back then. I, mm. I looked it up and it wasn't even like uh, used or coined by anybody until like the late 90s or early aughts. And so this was the early 90s and there was this group of uh, founding teachers and they had this vision mm. of integrating science, technology and maths mm-hmm. uh, in and into like experiences and trips and projects and experiments and and internships they had this this vision and they got some grant money and they started it and they called it stamp this was their name for it stamp so science technology and applied maths program so um catchy (laughs) yeah 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 i mean in hindsight it's just like phenomenal what they did but it, it um, for example, one of the things every year we would be required to do a really in-depth science fair project. And so at the beginning of the year, uh, we would start with um, ideas and researching it and connecting with industry mentors and then designing, you know, a uh, an experiment that had scientific rigor. And yeah. then we would carry it out, collect data, and then we would analyze it and 
repeat it, and then finally a presentation. I mean, science fairs are a big deal in America. I don't know if you've ever seen in the movies, but it's true. They're, they're a big deal. And so you'd have this big backboard with graphs, and uh, you'd have a report, and then you would stand and have a speech that you would give to uh, you know, judges. And so that was an example of something that we were required to do as part of this school, but, um, you know, gave us, it, it grew my confidence, not just like as a young woman, but as a young scientist and as a young mathematician and, uh, you know, as a young statistician, it gave me this, uh, I started to feel like I could have success in those fields. It, sound, it sounds amazing. And I think it's quite sad. I've been working in education for like 15 years now and, I've worked in many schools and I don't think, you know, looking back, I don't think I've ever experienced a science fair. And that, <laughs> that, that, that fills me with woe. I think oh. there's, there's, there needs to be like that, that push for science fairs, perhaps, you know, exercising that independence, the, you know, taking on that project, which actually leads me to our, you know, the, the next question, you know, how, how I, I'm already guessing the answer here, but how do you personally incorporate you know, project-based learning, and you mentioned in, in industry partnerships into your classroom, you know, how do you take what you experienced at your high school and bring to the 21st century classroom? Yes. So like you said, I work at a UTC and, you know, I, so I came to very quickly, just, oh, yeah. I, I'm familiar, like UTC, can you just very quickly just define what UTC is for my listeners yeah. out there that perhaps don't understand sure. the, the, the acronym there? So UTC stands for University Technical College. And so okay. they are um, in partnership with a university. Mm -hmm. And so they are GCSE and A-level. So, you know, uh, years 10 through 13. So key and stage are, four, key stage five, uh -huh. it's not, it's yes. not for the lower years. Okay. Gotcha. Right. gotcha. And, uh, and they are all, uh, STEM based in some fashion. So mm -hmm. in the Northeast, we have a couple of them. Uh, one is engineering and that's like mine is, uh, engineering focused. There's another one though, that's health focused. And so it's for students that are going into health fields and there's others, you know, okay. But, okay. but they're all somewhat STEM based. And, and so like I came to education with this belief that like what happens around the classroom outside of the classroom can be as important as what happens inside. And that's really kind of like defines what a UTC is and what attracted me to to want to work at one mm -hmm. and so a lot of you know you're saying you know these projects a lot of them do happen outside of the classroom okay. and um so one of the i'll tell you one of the biggest benefits though that i see from them is uh, over and over i think it offers students like a chance to shine in a way that they don't in the classroom okay. for example we recently had um uh, this was one of our industry partners northumbrian water and they came and they were doing a workshop with our t-level students and i was chatting with you know these in these representatives from the company and they were uh going on about how impressed they were with you know a few specific students about I mean, all of them but like a few specific students and i'm going to be honest with you they were not students that I would have thought, right? And, you know, like they saw something I didn't see in my classroom. Mm -hmm. And what a benefit, right? For the kid, uh, you know, to be praised for that. But also for me as an educator to kind of say, oh, like in them in a new light, right? Do you give like, them the, the complete freedom for their project? Do you give them a prompt? Is there something okay. that you, you yes. give them all? 
Yeah. So, so I can talk about like the industry projects are, yeah, yeah, are yeah. a specific thing. In this case, it was just, you know, this, um, they were coming and doing a specific workshop. They wanted some creative solutions around, a, you know, a challenge that they had, mm. um, and with wastewater and, you know, and they were seeking these creative solutions from these students. And so oh. that, that was that. But, but, um, industry projects at sixth form, they are given, um, the choice. And so the industry partners come with genuine problems that they have and they kind of sell them to these students and the sixth form students get to pick which who they want to work with at oh, wow. the like, like a bid like bidding almost like the, the yeah. in, so they, the yeah. industry comes in and then they bid for the students mm -hmm. kind, of, kind of we need your yeah. we need your help here you know we've got these these yeah. real real world problems can you mm -hmm. solve them and then the sixth form mm -hmm. students are Kind of sat back like yeah yeah we could take this on but yeah no, let's, let's look what they're interested in yeah, yeah. Pick, pick, anyway sorry sorry carry on carry on so at key stage four they're um kind of assigned like we have a few and they're you know this is what you're going to work on and then several groups will be working on it and they will all present their different solutions for the problem does that make sense mm -hmm. yeah, 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 yeah although a little bit different yeah but um uh, you know another benefit though from them is jobs i you know that these lead to internships and um, employment or degree level apprenticeships like for example at the end of this thing with you know with these companies they will come to us and they'll say uh we really liked them we were really impressed with them when they're done you know we want to offer them a degree level apprenticeship uh, that's a big deal that's a really big deal so it's huge, it's huge. i mean what, what mm -hmm. you're talking about there is exactly what our you know, school systems should be doing in the 21st century, you know, it sounds to me, I mean, if you're familiar with the future, the concept of the future school, um, mm -hmm. you know, you've got that whole concept. Of, I mean, one aspect actually of the future school is to have like this focus on a trajectory into careers. And it sounds yeah. to me like that's exactly what the UTC that you work for is doing. You've got this kind of yeah. streamline into into the world of work and it's actually the world of work fit for the 21st century so could i ask very quickly heather mm -hmm. do do you have like how do you come across the your partners in industry i mean do you yeah. actively seek them do they with university how do you maintain those relationships i mean that that sounds like a lot of work yeah and and the and the you know deputy leaders would be able to speak better to that like i came in and they had a lot of now what i do know is that um when you're a utc you have some founding members and so there are some founding uh you know, big industry members that are from that same area where um, the school is that have been with us the whole time however yes they're always actively seeking more and they've cultivated it like you said it's a big part of who they are and they have people at the school who's that's their job is to keep these connections and arrange these site visits and do that and i know that that's not something that most schools have but i do know there's organizations that are trying to fill that gap like um, innovate her. And Micah came on uh, Tom Rogers show a couple of weeks ago and she was mm -hmm. talking about that's something they do is they try and make those connections between, you know, uh, companies and industry partners and schools because I, I know that most, you know, don't have that kind of set up like a UTC does. Mm -hmm. But that's still mm -hmm. very, it's still so, so, so important. Now, as, as someone then who has, you know, you've both studied, uh, as well as worked in engineering um 
what advice do you have for educators who want to inspire more students to pursue STEM fields, you know, or, or fields in, in the STEAM industries? You know, what, what could you advise? I would say two things. The first one is, I think, the most important, and that it, as educators, in whatever stewardship and space that you are in charge of, is yeah. to foster success and belonging, I think. And so, for example, as STEM teachers, we want our students to feel like they belong in an engineering lab belong in a science lab. They belong behind the computer, that it's a place they feel comfortable and confident. Because, I mean, I think we all like to do things that we feel comfortable and confident doing, right? I mean, think back, you know, even me, I'm 14 and I thought, I'm good at this. Like, you know, in my mind, but isn't isn't that great? And that's what we want to have, like our students to have that same kind of um, experience where they say, I'm good at this. I I can do this. I belong here, right? And I think yeah. the second one I would say is that you can't be what you can't see. You you know, you you cannot be what you cannot see. And that's what I mean by that is that for example, I know our deputy um principal Catherine when she sets up these on-site visits with our industry partners, she specifically asks for younger local staff to be highlighted because we want the students to be able to see themselves, hear themselves, right? Because this is, yeah. you know, up in the Northeast. And so here, you know, people that sound like them, look like them are from, you know, the same places that they're from so that they can kind of say, oh, I, I could see myself being successful here. And, 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 it's, and it's impactful. We have a girl who we're really proud of. She graduated uh, with her GCSEs last year. And over the course of GCSEs had 13 different work-related experiences. So that's site visits, mock interviews, actual work experience in there. And, and she's the youngest degree-level apprentice. Right after GCSEs, she's got okay. a degree-level apprenticeship at a uh, Wilmot Dixon, which is a local engineering firm, to become yeah. a – or a construction management, sorry, to, to become construction, like, site manager, which girls never go into, rarely, right? Yeah, gonna, so uh, it's, yeah. it's amazing. I was going to mm -hmm. – yeah, I was going to kind of j jump on that and say, you know, this, this is – topical like you're talking about a young girl and already i'm thinking okay we've got a young girl that's interested in the stem steam subjects mm -hmm. and quite often you don't see um females like my wife for example oh, sorry we just have to pause for a second whilst my dog sasuke is just barking at the door sasuke come here i'm so sorry for this heather this happens fine. <laughs> every time i do the show there's someone knocking on the door i'm hoping someone is going to sasuke come here come here so sorry, Heather. This, it's fine. This is, the joys of broadcasting from my home. I actually have two rabbits next to me, a cat that is on the sofa. Oh, wow. The dog <laughs> is barking. We've got rats in the corner as well, not like loose or anything. They're in a cage. Come on. Come here. Sorry, Heather. Now, yeah, just you don't like my, my wife, for example, she she works in uh, in, in industry. She manufactures inks, etc. I'm not really allowed to go into the details of it because it's very secretive, um, high sci, high fi science, sciencey stuff. Um, but she quite often says like she is the only female in her lab yeah. um, and she is working with you know groups of men. And quite often she's like, oh, are there any girls that are interested in, in science at your school? And I think I want to go back to that notion that you're saying, you know, you cannot be what you cannot see. So you are actively and you are living, you know, you are showing your students like you can succeed here. And I really like that sentiment as well, because later on in the show, even though it's not necessarily linked to the world of work, 
you know, I'm going to be talking about how educators today are the digital custodians of the 21st century. You know, students, you know, young people, they are operating and they're living digital lives. Um, but there's no real guidance for them. They're just doing it on their own. And quite often it leads to lots of problems. And what I'm trying to, you know, kind of incorporate and try to activate or try to inspire is for educational leaders to kind of show young people how to operate and how to function on the digital platform. That, you know, I re that's really stuck with me, what you've said there. You cannot be what you cannot see. And as educators, we've got to kind of shine that light, you know, um, to, to, to our students. Um, are, are there any... You know, could you speak of any of the like the, the challenges or the opportunities of teaching? Like, you know, I want to kind of refer to your your T level here. You know, this yeah. first of all, I think you know, just define for us what a T level is. Yeah. You're teaching T levels in engineering, mm -hmm. and you're you know yeah. one of the first in the country to do so. So, yes. I think you are primed <laughs> to share with us. You know, what are the challenges and the opportunities of teaching that that T level? in engineering and also you know what impact you think it will have on the future student yeah so just so your listeners know uh, a t-level is kind of this part theory academic part technical part workplace training course it's full-time over two years so that's all they do they don't do it alongside eight levels or anything and it includes 315 hours of on-the-job workplace training mm -hmm. and so um it's like I said, equivalent to three A levels, and and it was created. They they really only started talking about T levels in 2017, and the first one began in 2020. So they're new, really new, and um, they they're created kind of in partnership with the related industry. So engineering, of course, with you know industry partners and um, organizations like you know national organizations for engineers that's how it was created so that it would meet the needs I mean the whole idea is so that when they're graduated they're workplace ready and so this engineering and manufacturer t-level it just started in 2022 so September this year and um, it, there's a lot of requirements on the provider so you have to, the teachers have to have industry experience okay. and you have to have industry standard equipment and so for us that's a lot of stuff you think about what's industry standard engineering equipment and if we have this huge engineering hall with a lot of you know amazing stuff it's one of the exciting things about it so we're the only provider in our area yet that's been allowed to do this it and i teach if you don't mind my asking no, it, it, it oh sounds... and i yeah yeah and there is a lot of you know support from the government uh to um, get these going because like you said yeah that that's not that's new right and anytime you're trying to do something new and different you need new and different teachers and equipment and so yeah of course just, that's, you know you know we're currently facing like huge staff shortages in the education sector yeah. generally what you're what you're discussing there is we need you know specific you know you need to have industry experience and a desire like yourself i mean i think your students are very, very lucky to have have you, Heather. But how many people out there are, you know, willing to come from industry and come into education, where potentially you'll you'll have to retrain, take a hit to your salary? That you know, you, you must be a rare teacher, I would assume. Well, um, I I think you're right. That's a challenge. That's mm -hmm. that's uh, going to be a challenge, and uh, yeah, to to staff these. Uh, so, but, but I I teach the maths module. 
Um, and so along with the science, that's kind of the bulk of their first year, the academic portion of their first year. Mm. And um, the thing that's, I one of the things I love about it is the maths is almost exclusively context-based, right? So like it, it erases this question of where am I going to use this? What am I going to do with it? So for example, in A-level maths, we teach a lot of the pure theory behind calculus and, but with the T-levels, they are using calculus, but it's just how do I do it and how do I use it? And all of the questions that they have are contextualized in engineering context. And so that's pretty exciting. It also gives us a lot of opportunity for crossover, right? Like if we're trying to take, um, it gives us good ideas for going back to the A-level classes, right? Or back to the GCSE classes and showing those connections. So as a teacher, I think it's kind of a valuable experience to to see those connections as well. But like right now, it, for me, it feels like a privilege to be a part of it because right now they're working on what's called the ESP. So right now they're using their lesson time to do this. It's called the Employer Set Project. It's okay. a real engineering brief and they've got 20 hours in exam conditions to do the research, the drawings, the design, and then a presentation, cost analysis, etc. I was going and, to ask you about this, like in terms of assessment then, I, I, would, yeah. I would imagine this is very much like the art GCSE where you have a set amount of time to work on a project in uh -huh. exam conditions. Yeah. Is that is that how they're assessed in, in, in the team? Well, team, there's different things. So they have two papers and that's, so my maths module is leading to that paper. They have this ESP, right? And then they have their workplace uh, training stuff. So there's all this stuff that, that goes together as far as the assessment. But like I was, I was invigilating them the other day working on this and I was so proud of them. I, I really was, as I was walking around and looking at the quality of their work and their ideas. And I just, I feel like their future is really bright. Like they are getting experience that I never got at their age in, in, you know, actual problem solving, you know, using an engineering you? process. Go ahead. Excuse, like just, I'm, I'm, I might be playing devil's advocate here and I am one for kind of going into, into the realms of creativity and imagination. Are your students, are they, are they like studying and are there projects for like uh, engineering to solve real world problems, like takes the, the, the climate change crisis, for example, or are they kind of plotting new technologies that will destroy the world? You know, like, you know, are they, are they working for some super villains or something? I mean, I, I don't know. So just, are they, are they, that's, that's what I'm asking. The future of these students, are they going to go on to, to solve real world problems or are they going to become the next, um, I don't know. Uh, well, oh, well uh, I don't know. We, we sure, we sure hope so. There's, there's a quote on the wall in our engineering lab and it says, it says engineering is the closest thing to magic found on earth. I love that. Cause it's, it's like, it, you know, it speaks like what I think, what I love about engineering yeah. is that it, it, you use creativity to solve problems. Like you create something. comes in steam. Yes, it? it is. Yeah. You're creating something that wasn't there before and you help people. And that feels a bit like magic, I think, right? Like uh, anytime we see new technology, an engineer created that and it often does feel like magic. Like, you know, all the new things our phone can do, for example. And like, uh, so I, 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 go ahead. In, in, I'm, I'm a big fan of Disney um, and they call their engineers in the Disney theme park. Yes. <laughs> uh, is it fun engineers? 
Or oh, I thought, like, imagine 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 is. I thought it was imagine. That's it. Imagine is. I don't know where I got fungine is from. Maybe I've just made that up. But it's imagine is <laughs> yes. like they 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 like when you said engineering is the closest thing to bringing magic to the world. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Disney have done yeah. that. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with actually. Um, recently, Disney unveiled um, a human a humanoid robotic um, creature that got like an emotional reaction you know they're famous for designing and engineering mm-hmm. animatronics you know disney have led the yeah. way mm-hmm. you've ever been to disney world you know i've, I've been on pandora uh, you know their, their robotics are out of this world um but they've designed this this robot that crawled out of a box um f- had fallen over had used the ai um language uh, model simulators to communicate and it got like an emotional response because of its failings and that to mm. me was quite quite spooky not that your kids are designing the <laughs> rise of the robots or anything not yet not yet probably sorry, but like sorry. you know you're saying about like the world and and the way that i like to introduce the engineering design process to my students is i yeah. say that yeah. limitations breed creativity Okay. And yeah, and I, I, I'll say it again, because it's like so powerful, I think limitations breed creativity. And what that means is like any engineering project has so many limitations, right? Like cost, cost of labor, cost of materials, cost of energy, or just like the location, right? Think about when you're doing something in space and how that location has different limitations than if you're doing it in Alaska, right? And it's going to get really cold. So there's all these limitations and it can be really easy to feel like those are um, obstacles, right? Yeah. That they're the kill, they're the kill joy to all of your brilliant ideas. But I think the key that I try and tell students is the key is to see them as, you know, propellants to your uh, creativity that within those constraints and limitations will come our best innovations. And so, uh, and that's, you think about the world, like, what do we need, right? We need solutions. And gosh, are there not a lot of limitations that we're trying to work within, right? Like you had said, climate change, economics, pandemics, all these like really big limitations that we need solutions that fit within. And so I, I just, I feel like that, you know, having students go through that process, just like they are right now, like these T-level students going through that process of like, here's the limitations, here's the things that you have to satisfy, but you have the kind of creativity to figure out how to do that. It's just a really powerful experience for them. Genuinely, you know, listening to you speak, I wish you were my teacher, if I'm honest with you. Um, <laughs> genuinely i feel that you you are going to have you know your students in the future they are going to solve some huge problem or they are (laughs) going to do something significant and they're going to be like thinking back to you they're going to be thinking you know that's nice (laughs) genuinely like i I, that's that's the, the vibes that i'm picking from you um but i've got to ask you know you mentioned earlier that you you know, you married young, you had loads of kids. I think yeah. you mentioned five, five kids. I have five right? kids. Yes, I have five children. Five, five <laughs> yeah. children. Uh-huh. And you, you're teaching A-level maths, which I can only assume to be um, incredibly difficult. Um, GCSE physics and the T-levels in engineering. Like, how how do you do it? How? Yes. That is, yes. And, yeah. and you've got time for me to interview you as well. Oh. <laughs> how? Well, I would say 
I'm, uh, you know, doing this, doing all these, I'm not convinced that you can be an expert at everything. I, 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 for me, the physics is the one that's the most out of my wheelhouse mm. and that I find, you know, challenging. And I recently read a, um, uh, a Twitter thing. Maybe you saw it too. I think her name was Madeline and she's a English teacher and she teaches one hour a week of maths. And she wrote this thread about how, you know, She's a very experienced and capable English teacher, but she's yep. learned a lot about how the pedagogy is different. And I would yeah. I would echo that, right? I the pedagogy for physics is different than the pedagogy for maths. Like leading a, an electricity practical with my, you know, year 10 physics students looks a lot different than my normal maths class. And so it's been a really steep learning curve for me. And I, I, um go ahead. I, I couldn't yeah. agree more. Like this year, I've taken on teaching drama, and you'd think drama and English, yeah, they're, they're the same thing, aren't they? You know, performing. Uh -huh. But actually, it's completely transformed my view on, on my pedagogy for you know teaching English. You know, the drama lessons yeah. have influenced my teaching of English. My English lessons have influenced my teaching of drama, and I'm finding even now I'm still gaining. I'm still developing. Yeah. As practitioner um heather we've got time for one more question before we okay. do break uh for for the news now you know i really want to kind of uh, drill down you've worked in both the united states as well as the united kingdom what are the differences that you know what differences do you see in the way that stem or steam education is approached in these two countries you know what would be the the defining difference between mm -hmm. Uh, the, the science uh, approach to science, technology, engineering, maths in the US compared to the UK? So, yeah, I think, you know, you, I, I remember when I was first training to become a teacher and I was talking to one of my children's teachers about the experience and she said, you train at one school and you think this is the way to do things. But mm. then you go to another school and you realize, oh, there's other good ways to do it. <laughs> and I've thought about that a lot in relation to moving schools, but also in relation to like, you know, between the United States and the UK. And I would say like the biggest difference that I see is that in the UK, it's much more exam centric in these mm. like GCSE years. And I, you know, the America has been experimenting with STEM schools longer. And I think the reason is because in America, generally schools have more local control. And so there is a national curriculum, but like local schools could have a bit more um, you know, flexibility about how they did that so that, you know, this group of teachers could kind of come up with this idea. And if they could pass it by their local school board, then they could give it a go. And so I think that that al allows them maybe to be a bit more flexible in the classroom about what's required, where, you know, and, and being a teacher now here myself, like you do feel this real pressure to get through the national curriculum, right? Mm -hmm. And and so I, I think that would be the biggest difference is say, you know, a teacher could require, you're going to do this science fair project. Whereas here it feels like we're trying to do them alongside. And that's, I think there are, I see changes, say for example, this T level, where especially mm -hmm. at post 16, they're trying to kind of incorporate more of this project-based learning you know, alongside that. But I think it's easy to uh, just kind of as a teacher, right, just to feel a lot of pressure around, you know, that that's your ultimate goal to prepare them for these exams. And cool. so I, I would say I would say that that's 
that's maybe the biggest one. But I, but I do see a lot of what I think are positive ways that, you know, we're trying to kind of incorporate both and see the value in both. Well, it's, you know, you're, you're even coming onto this show to discuss it at length. It is advocating and it is promoting, it is inspiring others to consider the importance of, of, of STEAM. But, you know, perhaps in this country, we are shackled by this examination system, which, you know, many consider to be stuck and rooted in 19th century education. Mm-hmm. And what we're discussing here is, you know, the, the, the future school. Um, mm-hmm. Perhaps there are some out there that believe the US is is moving further ahead by having, you know, the autonomy to be it's different. I, I wouldn't, I honestly like, wouldn't say it's, it's, I mean, it's just different systems or whatever, but I, I do think that would be the difference like that I see is that, mm. you know, a, around this project-based learning is that, you know, a teacher can decide kind of, well, this is required and this will be part of their grade. Um, there's benefits and drawbacks to that, but I do think that it, it can kind of, you know, you get a teacher who's in, who's committed to this idea and they can push it more. Whereas sometimes yeah, here yeah. it's like hard to encourage a student when they know ultimately probably what people will, you know, or they feel like the the exam is the most important thing or something. So. Cool, cool. Well, Heather, you know, as I said to you earlier, massively, massively inspirational. Um, I really do oh, appreciate thanks. like your time. I know it's a Friday evening. Uh, many teachers perhaps would be sleeping right now. Perhaps they'll be doing something <laughs> different. I don't know. You know, no, I, it's I, been I, it's been a joy. I, I honestly, it's it's been great. I'm I'm so glad you asked. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'm I'm going to let you go. Um, okay. Feel feel free to continue listening to the show. We're going to play some okay. uh, some more news, and we're going to finish by talking about the digital frontier, a call to arms for educational leaders. So, listeners, thank you, um, Mark. No, thank you, Heather. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Goodbye. So, listeners, there you have it. There was our inspirational guest, uh, Heather Pearson. Um, absolutely brilliant. And, you know, I absolutely, absolutely enjoyed and relished that interview. I feel like I want to go back to school and study engineering myself. Anyway, um, we'll bring you now the news. Please stick around and hopefully with John Katz Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Schools Week reports the government is set to offer overseas teachers who come to England to teach languages or physics a £10,000 relocation premium under a new trial. The premium would be open to both trainee and established teachers working outside of the UK and would be paid at the end of their first term. Under the plan, there would be no need for the money to be paid back. The Department for Education said the trial could support up to 400 people to relocate, with the full cost adding up to £4 million. According to recent data, secondary school teacher recruitment targets have been missed for all but one of the past 10 years and last year they fell short by 40%. The pilot for this new programme will run in the next academic year. In strike action news, industrial action has been suspended by NEU members in Wales. The action is halted whilst a new pay offer is considered. 
In a statement reported on a range of media platforms, NEU leaders in Wales said that following discussions with the Welsh Government, a new revised and fully funded pay offer will be put to members. The planned strike for the 15th and 16th of March will now not take place, although these dates remain for action in England and will continue to go ahead as planned. The revised offer for those teaching in Wales is said to be worth a total of 1.8%. The offer will be voted on by members of the NEU in Wales via electronic ballot. NEU leaders Dr Mary Bowstead and Kevin Courtney thanked the Welsh Government for the constructive approach to finding a resolution and contrasted it with the behaviour of Gillian Keegan, England's Secretary of State for Education, who they said was preventing talks in England by refusing talking to ACAS. Teachers in Scotland, who are members of the EIS union, have also voted to accept their latest pay offer. This will see a 7% rise backdated to April 2022, a further 5% next month and another 2% in January. NESUWT members in Scotland have yet to vote on the offer. Student loans are back in the spotlight after changes to the system. Channel 4 reports that student loan repayments will rise for those in the next cohort of students in England, as the repayment threshold is to be dropped. The government has said this makes the loan system fairer for taxpayers and students, whilst education experts say it will make low to middle income graduates worse off. Current students will only make 9% repayments when they earn over £27,295 a year, or £2,274 a month, or £524 a week in the UK. However, if you're starting an undergrad course or qualify for an advanced learner loan on or after August the 1st, 2023, those students will pay 9% of their income over the lower threshold of £25,000 a year, 2,083 a month or 480 per week. Students on the new plan won't be expected to make payments until April 2026, but the length of repayment is also changing. Current students pay until the debt is cleared or for 30 years, but new students will pay until the debt is cleared or for 40 years. Full details of the changes plus comments on the impact many believe it will have can be found on Channel 4's website and all data has been subject to the outlet's fact-check system. Finally, a writer who wrote a book on the topic of online misogyny has given an interview to The Guardian. Laura Bates wrote Men Who Hate Women, The Extremism No One Is Talking About, and it was published in 2020. In the interview, she raises concerns about the widening gap between generations who have never known a world without the internet and those older generations struggling to understand and keep up. She talks in particular of the impact this is having on what she describes as the millions of girls who are realising the impossibility of escaping from harassment, revenge porn, deep fakes and the difficulties in navigating a world online. Bates sees the problem in its broadest form, not just an issue with influencers like Andrew Tate. In fact, she says she wasn't even aware of him until last year. This, she says, is worrying in itself as there is a danger that the well-intentioned coverage will only boost his profile and that if and when his influence wanes, many will think it is a case of problem solved, when actually the problems and attitudes that give rise to people like Tate will continue. Full details of the article can be found on the Guardian website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. 
Okay, welcome back to the show. Um, so far, so good. It's been absolutely brilliant. We've covered two of our segments. We've gone through the five facts of Did You Know? All very interesting tidbits of anything related to STEAM. We've spoken to our esteemed guest, Heather Pearson, about her experiences teaching STEAM within a UTC. We've learned a lot about UTCs and the, the, the T-level in engineering and the potentiality that that has for students in the future. And just to close the show now, I do want to just take you on a journey, as it were, uh, a journey on the digital frontier. You know, I want to kind of put this to you, my uh, my, my dear listeners, um, as a almost a call to arms for us educational leaders to embrace our role as the custodians of the digital sphere, navigating the virtual labyrinth. Um, I suppose this is quite topical. You know, if you were just tuned in, listening to the news there, we we spoke about the hate speech, the aggression toward women, the way that people behave online. You know, it doesn't surprise me that that's the world that we live in today because the digital realms, they are fairly new. They're in their infancy. They are juvenile in terms of, you know, our existence on this planet, the way that people function and communicate and socialise together online is still very early, hence why we refer to it as the digital frontier. And I suppose what I'm asking educational leaders to do here is to take on that role and show young people how to behave online. I don't mean just having an assembly or, um, uh, you know, a PRE lesson that talks about you know, how we should behave online, you know, I don't, I don't mean just giving a set of rules. I'm talking, I'm, you know, I'm referring back to what Heather had said, you know, you cannot be what you cannot see. And if our students can't see how we are conducting ourselves online as educators, as professionals, as human beings, then how on earth do they know how to behave? And for example, if they are only seeing the hate speech from certain individuals, then they are going to mirror that. They are going to behave in a way that they deem fit. Now, in our contemporary professional existence, we traverse a myriad of virtual communities, whether that be a community of educationalists on LinkedIn or Twitter, whether that be communities of social activists on Facebook, or whether that just be a collective of creative artists. We are reminiscent of the allegory of Plato's cave. If anyone is unfamiliar with Plato's cave, I do recommend, especially in terms of education, that you do familiarise yourself with it. You know, I referenced it in the very first show that I did in terms of you know the interview that I had with Plato himself. You know, what? I've been calling him and he hasn't responded to any of my calls since. You know, he's since gone on and, and had fame elsewhere, I would imagine, since bringing him back from the grave. But Plato's cave analogy suggests that, you know, there are human beings that are shackled, stuck within a cave, looking at the, 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 the walls of the cave, and they see these shadows that seem, you know, they see a reality, they see the shadows that emerge on the, the, the walls themselves, and they see this as a reality of their existence. And they follow it blindly. But actually, outside of the cave, at the entrance, there is light. And the objects that they see on the wall are just mere 
shadows of the existence that they are missing. And as educators, we are to bring those out of the cage and expose the real world to them. And I suppose what I'm saying here is that um, rather than being physically shackled within a dimly lit cavern, observing these mere shadows upon the wall, we find ourselves, or rather we found, find our students enveloped in a digital domain where the ephemeral silhouettes are supplanted by a ceaseless deluge of content, meticulously crafted and disseminated by technological titans or those social platformers um, that seem to have risen to power on the countless likes that they receive in the pursuit of our students' attention and, by default, potentially gaining money from them. For any parents out there, I'm certain you would have had your child at some point sat in front of YouTube watching video after video after video, listening to the content that they are experiencing. And that is their experience of the online world. Just clicking the like button so they get more content that is the same. Well, actually, as custodians of the digital sphere, it falls upon us then to illuminate the digital path towards intellectual and spiritual growth online. We are to guide our students towards a realm abundant with education, global citizenship and avenues for both professional and personal growth. We do this day to day. You know, any educational leader worth their salt will be on a social media platform. They will be collaborating with their colleagues from across the world. They would be gaining, they would be discussing education, taking it to a whole new level. And we need to bring our students into that world, not necessarily into the educationalist community, but bring them and show them how to function and how to operate in, this, in that world. And by enabling our students to discern the machinations that underlie this digital content, the digital content that they consume on a, on a daily basis, and you know, fostering their ability to critically evaluate this information, then we empower them to liberate themselves from the constraints of their virtual caves. That's what 21st century education looks like. That's what future school looks like. Teaching, showing our students how to critically analyse this digital landscape so that they are able to release themselves and see the world for what it truly is, as opposed to seeing the bias, the racism, the sexist um, comments or content that they could possibly be consuming. So it's all about empowering them to escape the constraints of their virtual cave. And in doing so, we are cultivating that generation of enlightened individuals that are capable of harnessing the immense potential of technology. And if they were to do that, they will be forging meaningful connections. They'll be broadening their understanding of the world they live in. And they will be contributing positively to the collective human experience and as educationalists that is what we want them to do we want them to commute you know positively contribute to the, the to the well-being and goodness of our species on this planet but it will not be easy you know as a sector you know we have multiple issues to contend with chief amongst them the upskilling and digitalization of an already exhausted 
and tired profession. You know, who, you know, who out there wants to take on the additional work of becoming a digital custodian um, for less money, right? You know, isn't that why teachers are streaking currently? Because we are a sector in distress. We are a workforce that is missing the skills. Um, we're missing the, you know, we're, we're missing, you know, so much from our profession. And what I'm asking is for a call to arms for us to embrace the digital environment. Yet that does involve a lot of upskilling. Not everybody out there, for example, is fully competent with with using technology in the classroom, let alone navigating the digital realms. You know, the 21st century educator has to be a catalyst for change, though. We have to. But quite honestly, it will mean more work as it involves the continual training, the continual development of digital and technical skills, some of which will be foreign and quite otherworldly um, to, to, practitioners, to practitioners within the sector. You know, I've worked with many fantastic teachers in the past, and sometimes I take for granted the the skills upon which I have, have gained. You know, we spoke earlier to, to Heather about her experiences um, at a STEM school in, in, in the US, in Alaska, should I say. Um, from my own experience, you know, I went to a technological college, Seneca Technology College, it was known as STC. Um, it wasn't, you know, at cutting edge. It didn't have a focus necessarily on mathematics and, and STEM in particular. But what it did have was a state of the art in the 19, late 1990s, this was a state of the art IT lab and introduction to office-based skills using computers. And from that, I learned how to use and navigate spreadsheets. I learned how to navigate, you know, programs on computers. And there are many practitioners that still struggle to, to do this in an efficient and impactful way. So I do recognise that even though I'm stating that it's important for the 21st century educator to be the catalyst for change, it will take work, continual training and adaption of our current roles to fit to fit that bill. But I just li listen to this though. You know, if if I haven't convinced you, it, it's not enough for the twenty first century educator to, to to just give students you know an education that is measured by um, systems of examination. You know, it's important, don't get me wrong, the academic success of our students is incredibly important. We want them to be academics. We want them to succeed in life. We want them to go through um, and, and do well with the examinations that they will undoubtedly have to, to face. But we have so much more to give our students. We have so much more to teach them. You know, through our steadfast guidance and our unwavering commitment, we possess the capacity to transform the digital landscape into a bastion of knowledge, empathy and growth. You know, if it's not us, then who will take on this challenge? You know, I speak for my own children, my nephews, my nieces. Um, if, you know, it, if there isn't a responsible adult i'm not saying that my, my family are not responsible adults they are i, I love them dearly my sisters um my, my parents etc and and you know i I'm, I'm suggesting that you know educators have access to a whole new world you know typically if you were to go in the past we would want our students to succeed academically potentially go on to study 
at a college or a sixth form, potentially go on to university so that they are ushered into, you know, a new world, you know, social, um, social motivation or social motivation. I'm talking about that, that climbing through the, the social um, rank, social immobilization. I can't work with the terms that with me now, just making the world a better place through education. Well, we can do that through the digital realms as well as vigilant sentinels. You know, we preside over the digital expanse. You know, we are charged with the solemn duty of erecting robust frameworks for the thriving of digital learning experiences. You know, this is an undertaking. You know, this undertaking necessitates the crafting of uh, captivating interactive content, for example. You know, even the sporadic meme or GIF, you know, the adoption of the finest methodologies in online pedagogy. Take what you do in the classroom on a day-to-day basis and take that to the digital realm, you know? Simply put, the 21st century educator has a moral obligation to merge that of what they do in their classrooms physically to the digital realm. To some extent, we already do it, you know? You know, it's having your students email you. It's a relatively simple thing to do, but how many students know how to communicate to their teachers professionally through email? That's the first step. But really what we're talking about here, you know, think back to the COVID-19 pandemic when classrooms were forced to go onto online platforms such as Google Classroom or Microsoft Teams or any other online provider out there. You know, those cloud platforms were being utilised for educational purposes. So let's continue using them. Use them as they should be used. Training grounds where we, the moderators, the educationalists, can upload content and encourage a healthy online community where our students can put into practice their digital personas in a professional setting that is monitored and safe for them to make mistakes and potential gains. Give them the grounds from which they could function together in a healthy, sustainable way. Usher them into that digital realm. You know, I'll share with you one such tale of success through my own place of work. And this is by no means the brainchild of my own. You know, my, my current school, um, it's a fairly, uh, a fairly new school. We've recently launched its own school-wide House Cup competition, very reminiscent of Hogwarts, um, you know, House Cup. You know, as a child myself, I never experienced the competitive nature of a House Cup. You know, I went to, a, you know, a state's a state school in a working class area you know I love my school I love my days at school but it was very much um, a different experience from education as I've come to know it today you know I'm talking you know commonplace for for children to be smoking their cigarettes at the top of the playground etc and no real challenges on that Um, but this competition that's set up at my current school you know, the, the students are really involved in it and they absolutely love it. And it fosters like this competitive nature of our students um, in a way that is which is fun. It is healthy and it's teaching them to be, you know, better winners, better sportsmen, better 
you know, writers, even better dramatists, because I'm doing a drama house competition currently. Um, but what's happened recently is our pastoral lead, uh, Mr. Martin, has taken the step into the digital realm and has created a school wide team where the latest news, competitions, updates regarding this competition take place on our cloud platform. Now, by leveraging the power of this digital platform, students and faculty alike have come together to participate in various challenges and activities, not doing the challenges and activities online, but actively engaging with the competition online itself. You know, teachers are uploading the content, you know, this is the next competition, this is the current scoreboard, you know, galvanising the support and galvanising the um, wanting to take part in these competitions, you know, fostering a sense of camaraderie, I suppose, and that healthy competition, but in a virtual environment. And every time a student were to respond in that virtual environment, there's an opportunity for an educator to praise them or perhaps just kind of guide them into stating or saying the right thing. You know, maybe that wasn't the right thing to say in that moment of time, but if it was, there's a thumbs up, okay? So what exactly, you know, does this all mean to, to, to you, though? You know, you're listening to this show and you're thinking, God, Mark, you're going on a little bit here, which is fine. I get that quite often. My colleagues, even my students told me today, so you're doing it again. Um, I'm notorious for just going on sometimes. <laughs> but anyway, by giving our students the digital platform, we are teaching them how to operate in a healthy social manner, fit for the digital spaces that they will undoubtedly have to navigate in the future. You know, the digitalization of education, the digitalization of society is only going to increase. And as I said, it's our moral obligation as educators to ensure that those students, our future leaders, are going to operate in a way that they know is successful, that they know is the right way to do. Now, in order to maintain our position at the vanguard, though, we have to pledge our unwavering commitment to continual professional growth and enrichment, ensuring that we remain adept at navigating our pupils through the ceaselessly evolving digital terrain. That's a mouthful, isn't it, right there? What I'm suggesting is that we have to keep, you know, right up to date with regard to the new developments in, in digitalization, how, you know, we socialize online and by doing this you know we're embracing the digital frontier you know i don't often quote um elon musk uh, you know for for ill for better or ill you know he does have you know significant impact significant influence i suppose on the way that we lead our digital lives you know, I'm not necessarily saying that Elon Musk is someone that we look to for inspiration or guidance, but he, you know, he does own one of the most powerful plat uh, social platforms out there today. Um, and he says, you know, we have a duty to evolve education to adapt to the rapid advancements of technology. If not us, then then who? Um, or we could take the words of Cheryl uh, Sandberg, who was the former chief operating officer. Um, who worked for Facebook, and she asserted that we must equip our students with the tools to navigate the digital world responsibly, as well as effectively. So, you know, we've got two leaders in the digital world 
in social media platforms, both of which recognize that education plays a crucial role. And what I'm suggesting to you guys is it's not enough for us just to kind of put it onto a PowerPoint and say, these are the rules for social media. This is what you can say. This is what you can't say. Instead, we should be living and breathing those digital communities with our students in a safe and secure way using school cloud platforms, whichever ones that you use. It's those online classrooms. Take your pedagogy and bring it to the digital sphere. You know, you may be fortunate to have students at your school using a bring your own device policy or they may have their laptops or computers. If that is the case, utilize those laptops. You know, I, for one, am continually uploading my content from classes onto that digital platform, into that digital classroom. At the start of this academic year, my year seven students, for example, maybe two, three, four of them um, in, a, in, a, in a given class, because I teach quite a few year sevens. Um, they kind of knew how to navigate that, that, that platform. Now, all of them do, all 30 in my class. And they do this because it is a part of their life and they communicate with me both in the physical realm as well as on the online realm. And actually, those that communicate with me in the online realm are the ones that you wouldn't expect to communicate with, with me. The quiet students that don't like necessarily to come and speak to you directly or to speak openly in front of the whole class. Not that that's the practice that I encourage in my classrooms because I'd like to feel that all students can speak to me. But anyway, embracing the power of technology, you know, we can illuminate and emphasize the learning communities that will form the foundations of our future societies. As educational leaders, it is time for us to roll up our sleeves and embrace our responsibility to guide and train students in the online world. By adopting this proactive approach, we can ensure that our young people are not only prepared for the challenges of the digital sphere, but also equipped with the skills necessary to thrive in a rapidly evolving world. With our guidance, they can soar like digital eagles, ready to seize the boundless opportunities of the digital age. In conclusion, I would suppose, I suppose it is crucial for us to recognise our role as educational leaders in this digital frontier, leveraging technology to create meaningful learning experiences and nurturing the next generation of global citizens. Together, that's me, you, all of us, we can reshape the digital landscape, fostering a world of abundant, uh, fostering a world abundant with knowledge, empathy and growth and together we can enlighten our students to a digital world outside of their virtual caves if not us then who and that's the show bang on time i cannot believe it it is half past seven the show is ended i'm 16 seconds over that to me is great. It's been an absolute blast of a show today. I really just want to put a shout out for Heather for, 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 for tuning in, giving us her time. It was fantastic to interview her. We've had our five interesting facts from Did You Know? And you've had my spiel on the digital frontier and why educational leaders today should be taking on those custodian roles. Anyway, peace out. Have a great weekend. I'll speak to you all in two weeks time. Bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. 
Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.